Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. podcast land hello world we are back in your ear holes again some more we are your friendly neighborhood dc tour guides here to talk about all things political scandalous uh great stories and great hair uh that is what we've got here um and as always i'm rebecca i'm becca and together we are the rebecca's uh, we are back. We are doing the first part of a two-parter this time. So if you are a longtime listener and fan of the pod, the first episode in November is always about an election. Uh, we did it in 2020, we did it in 2021, and now it's 2022. And so we're going to do the election of 1968. But whoa, there's a lot of stuff going on in 1968. You really cannot just take that election and pull it out and nope. talk about it on its own because there's so, so much contextual stuff going down. So we decided to make it a two-parter. And honestly, folks, we could have made it like a 40-parter because there's a whole lot, but we didn't want to go that far. So we're going to talk this time in the first half of our two-parter. We're going to build up. We're going to talk about the spring and the summer. So you're going to hear a bunch of stuff that kind of leads toward the election. And then in part two, we'll talk about the conventions. We'll talk about sort of the particular drill down on the um, election itself uh, and kind of how all that unfolds. So that is where we are. And I'm just going to say to you, we're just not even going to talk about Richard Nixon at all in this part. Nixon was around in 68. He's around in the spring and summer. We're just going to address him in part two, uh, as we talk about that, because there's already so much that then to be like, and here's what's going on with Nixon, right. it's just, it adds too much. It does. But please know that we know that Richard Nixon is an important figure of 1968. <laughs> we do, but this is the last We are well about. aware. <laughs> we are aware. And they also know that there's a lot of like socio-cultural stuff that's happening that we're not going to talk too much about either, because again, like I said, there's a lot. So we're going to talk, this is like political mostly and even with just that there's still a whole lot of other stuff we could have talked about like it's complicated we may have bitten off more than we can chew it's gonna be fine but are you ready 1968 becca let's do this 1968 first of all as a little context uh as you listeners know i like tv movie pop culture and i'm re-watching one of my favorite tv shows of all time mad men and i just 
got into season six, which is really 1968. And I just watched the episode, The Flood, which if you have seen the show, you might remember uh, highlights a pretty pivotal 1968 event. And it's sort of fascinating to be watching the show, knowing that we were going to do this podcast on 68, because culturally, there is so much happening. There's so much happening in film. There's so much happening in music. There's so much happening in the culture, in the counterculture. There's a lot happening and a lot of change and a lot of evolution in the country. And I was thinking about watching um, Mad Men about uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, and about how that was the the like biggest movie of the year. I think technically Funny Girl made more money, but 2001, Kubrick's classic, was really like the film. And how much that says about the American psyche in 1968. Historians, journalists have pegged 68 the year that shattered America. And you see that in the pop culture. People are f- are freaking out. There's a lot happening. Yes. Obviously, Becca and I didn't live 19 through, through 1968. We were not even a prayer at that time. But for the one of the historians that I looked into said that if you did not live through 1968 or have no memory of it, all the stuff that you think about in the 60s, probably 75% of them actually happened in 1968. Not the whole of the 60s, just 1968. So it's a big... Very much so. It's such an encapsulation of what has come to define the decade. So it's the year that shattered America. There is a lot of really big things happening, much of which we're going to go into more detail in in a minute. But think about really the peak of the Vietnam War. Think about the more broader overarching paranoia of the Cold War. We are very much entrenched in that. There's the civil rights movement and continued sort of splintering upheaval around the civil rights movement. And we have a president, Lyndon B. Johnson, who's in his second term, first elected term. Um, He's trying to lead us through this and he's facing down whether or not he's going to run again, uh, whether he is going to make another play at the presidency, which he is entitled to do. So you have all of this happening, as well as changes in women's rights, changes economically, uh, and a lot of this sort of cultural upheaval. A lot of people going, the old way doesn't work anymore. So let's let's take this a little bit piece by piece. Let's talk about Vietnam. And let me please say, I won't speak for Rebecca, I'll speak for myself. I'm not a military historian. <laughs> I love military history. I think there's a lot of fascinating stuff there. Um, we talk about Vietnam a lot on our tour particularly in the context of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. But please know this is going to be a bit of an overview of 68 in Vietnam because there have been whole books written just about this one year in the Vietnam War. Yeah, so Vietnam, the Vietnam War is a lot, there's complicated, and I also feel like as a historian, you cannot divorce like the military history from the broader social, economic, cultural, political context. So that's kind of part of what this is. Um, The Vietnam War is, 1968 is the biggest and sort of most involved year that the United States is in the war in Vietnam. And it begins right at the beginning of the year. The North Vietnamese at the end of January are going to launch something called the Tet Offensive. Tet is, there's a longer word for it, but it's basically their new year. And the reason that the North Vietnamese launch it on January 30th is because, like all of us on our new year, they assume the South Vietnamese will be sleeping late and hungover. Um, and so that's why they're, they assume they'll catch them off by surprise, is basically what happens, actually. Um, it is a massive assault on several different targets launched by the North Vietnamese that very much weakens the claim by Johnson and the Defense Department that the United States is winning this war. So we've been involved in Vietnam for more than a decade at this point, which is not at all Johnson's fault. And we have been ramping up for the few years before this. 
and the Johnson administration is claiming that the North Vietnamese, their will is just about broken. They're almost done. They're backing down. Right. They're weak. They're poorly organized. Um, we, we, we've got them against the ropes. Yes. That's sort of the messaging. Right. This is going to immediately really put paid to that idea. Like, that's clearly not what's happening. They're going to launch a multi-city, multi-step effort to overwhelm the South Vietnamese and the Ameri- their American allies. And in a couple of places, it really does. Like, the Battle of Hue goes on for over a month. It is extremely bloody and vicious. Um, and this is going to, it's going to cause, in the United States, a huge credibility gap between what is coming out of official Washington and what Americans are literally seeing on their television screens and what they're being told in their newspapers every morning. So there's a big difference between sort of what we're being told and what we're seeing with our own eyes. And when we talk about Tet Offensive, this is not simply one attack or one launch. It's essentially six months of the year when we talk about how much fighting occurs as part of this offensive. It's three phases, January to March, May to June, and then August to September. So it's spanning multiple years or multiple months within the year. It's different targets in different parts of the country. They attack the U.S. Embassy in Saigon, which is a huge kind of emotional blow, right? When your embassy is attacked, that does not make it seem like you're winning anything because Those are usually where you have your strongholds are near your embassies. And it really is going to make a lot of Americans who are already hesitant about this war, weary of this war, questioning our ability to win it, to really start pushing back. And we have had opposition to this war from the beginning, but 68 and the way that the Tet Offensive plays out is a bit of a tipping point. And I think it's important to mention that tactically, the North Vietnamese don't win the Tet Offensive as it were. South Vietnamese and the American allies are going to sort of push back and sort of fight back and win from a tactical standpoint, but it's a huge propaganda victory for the Vietnamese. It's absolutely from a kind of political perspective and a strategic perspective. They show that they're not backing down. They're showing strength. They're showing that they're willing to put it all out there and it's just going to work work out for them the way that they want. It doesn't really matter what losses they face on the field. It is all about how it looks. And it looks really bad for the U.S. Right. And it's really like the the North Vietnamese assume when they launch this offensive that there will be supporters of them throughout the South that will rise up and sort of aid them in their effort. And that actually does not really happen for the most part. And so they're wrong in that. And the United States does, along with the Arvin, the South Vietnamese uh, force, they're going to basically win. But the it's a huge victory for the North Vietnamese in terms of propaganda and in terms of uh, politics. It's also going to demonstrate to the United States we're nowhere near as close to winning this war as we think we are, and the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese are not backing down. They are going to resist with everything they have. And so that's going to be really important. This is also the moment, sort of the spring and summer of 1968, when you're having the largest amount of American troops in Vietnam. There had been American troops, they've been ground troops since 1966, but this is your, when you're thinking of all of the images you've seen of the Americans in Vietnam, chances are pretty good it comes from this spring in 1968. There are over 600,000 Americans on the ground in Vietnam that year. It's the most expensive year of the war in uh, for the U.S., both in terms of dollars and in terms of lives. 
So this is, when you, we go to the wall, the wall the, a lot of the names are 1968. That's, this is the big year. It is the deadliest year of the war. 16,592 Americans were killed in 1968 alone. Yeah, if you think about the wall, this represents about a quarter of it, about 25% of total casualties of what we consider the Vietnam War. So that's in one year of 16 years of fighting or 16 years on the ground, um, just to kind of put that into some context. This, the single deadliest day of the offensive is the first day, January 31st. That's actually the single deadliest day of the Vietnam War period for the Americans. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, 246 Americans killed in action on January 31st. New draft calls are issued uh, in order to keep up with this demand because we need a lot of troops to go in country. And there's a draft call issued in February 1968 for 48,000 men, which is the second biggest draft call of the entire war. And this is not going to go over well with people of draft age. And here's the other thing, the other nugget. 1968, your baby boomers are in college. And so you have this massive new generation, the beginnings of whom are 22. So they're all young. They're all draft. All the men, obviously, are draft age. And so this is going to be extremely unpopular. You're seeing so the sort of inequities are starting to be very clear in how the United States is sending people over. You can get exemptions for things, whereas people who are from poor, poorer and marginalized communities are not getting exemptions to go be drafted quite as easily. So you're starting to see that fracture as well in a lot of what's happening uh, on the home front uh, as the call for draftees goes up. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit about the anti-war sentiment because certainly young people, college-age Americans are really, really speaking out. We'll talk about some specific examples about that in a little bit. But the war is becoming so unpopular in 68 that the people, the kinds of people who are speaking out are not just your young people. You're, they're not just your counterculture. I was fascinated to read a little bit more about the Boston Five. Did you know about the Boston Five, Rebecca? I did not. This was fascinating to me. So here's what you know about the Boston Five. Five men, overwhelmingly adult professional males, are charged, four would be sentenced to federal prison, but five are charged for counseling and advising young men on how to refuse military service and avoid the draft. I think we tend to think about draft dodger in a very particular way. That term, right, sort of insinuates illicit activity and a shirking of duty, but there were plenty of responsible contributing members of society saying there is no reason for these young men to go over and get killed for nothing. So among the Boston Five was Dr. Spock, like the baby doctor, the guy, the man who told every one of these greatest generation parents how to raise their baby boomer babies. And he was a very outspoken opponent to the Vietnam War, to America's involvement. And he was like advising young men on how to avoid the draft. And I find that really fascinating. There was also William Sloan Coffin, who was a chaplain at Yale University, who particularly was giving advice on utilizing religious exemptions. Marcus Raskin, who would go on to be the founder of the progressive think tank, Institute for Policy Studies. Mitchell Goodwin, who was a teacher. And then Michael Ferber, who was a seminary student. He was actually the only individual who personally resisted the draft as opposed to simply advising on how to do so. And these five men go before a judge in January of 1968. And this is a pretty big trial. There's a lot of attention around it because Dr. Spock, that's, people are like, wait, what? 
And it's just, um, Spock says it's such a frustrating experience with this trial because it was very clear that the judge was not going to listen to any arguments that the government was wrong about the war. And that's really these five men's position is that the government is wrong about this and we have an ethical responsibility to do what's right as ethical human beings and moral human beings outside of what the government says is right. Nobody is actually going to serve very much prison time out of this, but the fact that this is this big trial at the beginning of the war, I think really illustrates a shift in where anti-war sentiment is. It's not simply on the fringes, it's becoming very mainstream, and a lot of Americans are feeling more and more comfortable saying, wait a second, what are we doing? And I just find that fascinating, Dr. Spock. Yeah. Also, Marcus Raskin, one of the Boston Five, his son is one of our local congressmen, Jamie Raskin from Montgomery County. That's right. That's right. That's right. While it does not become public, this is also in 1968, the spring of 1968 is when the My Lai Massacre occurs. And that is not known in the United States for another year. So it doesn't like impact what's going on. But you're seeing the increase of news stories, color photographs, videos of Americans in Vietnam. And so this is really what's going to undercut the public support of this war. They're seeing it every day in their newspaper and on the news at night, full color photographs of a war going on in a jungle and American boys are sacrificing. And the question is why? Like one officer is quoted in a paper in 1968 saying that it became necessary to destroy a town in order to save it. And just the idea of that is so insane and incendiary in the United States that it becomes this, why are we doing this? Why are we sullying the name, the good name of the United States to do this? The civilian impact of this war is coming more to the forefront as we get into 68. The images of towns on fire, of children on fire, of executions in the street, that famous photograph right, of a South Vietnamese officer shooting a North Vietnamese officer, right, point blank. Um, the violence and the, the tragedy of this war playing out and America's role in it, people are really seeing it and absorbing it. And again, while the extent to some of America's actions won't be better known until the next year and the years to come, people are already starting to suspect that this war is encouraging behavior and engaging in behavior that we would not want associated with our name. And no, no less of a respected person than Walter Cronkite reports live from Vietnam and says it is mired in stalemates and he is going to raise a not harshly critical, but a skeptical view of what the Pentagon and the military officials are saying about this war. And frankly, I think if you've lost Cronkite, you're in some trouble. He is the most respected of the news journalists. And his reporting from Vietnam is going to really start to make everyday Americans say, this is not it. And that's going to be very much the attitude of the United States. Like people who watch this, like Walter, Walter Cronkite's on every night. He's a big, he's an institution. And this, he does not make political statements. He reports the news and all of a sudden he's saying, this isn't really great, gang. Like, we're just, something bad is happening here. So I remember when Cronkite died, like, one of the men who eulogized him on the news was like, this is the one political chit he called in. Like, this was it. This was his moment that was like, hey, yeah, I'm going to comment on this because people are dying for some, for a reason that is not great and we should examine what's happening here. And so when you lose Cronkite, there's this very real sense of like, whoa, you've lost something. Like, the middle America is turning against you here. 
Columbia University shut students shut down the school over a pro war protests. So you're seeing as the spring goes on increasing numbers of protests of young people of draft age. You're seeing this throughout the campuses across the country. Uh, we even have Jeanette Rankin, who is no one thinks of in this era. Jeanette Rankin is the first woman to serve in the United States Congress in 1917. So 50 years later, she is leading an anti-war protest at the age of 87, which is remarkable. Jeanette Rankin's amazing. Um, and I just love that. I think it's a great example, too, of this is crossing generations. Generations are speaking out. That said, there are some peace talks happening in 68. I want to touch on that and just drop that little nugget in there because that's going to have a little bit of influence into what plays out later with the election. So there are certainly people attempting and people within the Johnson administration that are desperate to end this war. Johnson wants nothing more than to say, this is not a loss. We have ended this war. We're going to bring these people, our men home triumphant. If Johnson could have one magic wish at this point in 1968, this is what he's wishing for. However, let's move to something that Johnson had a little bit more control over uh, or a little bit more role in, and that's the civil rights movement as we reach 1968. And I think we really should start with sort of the biggest moment of 68 as it relates to, to civil rights, and that's the assassination and tragic death of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, he goes to Memphis. Uh, he's in Memphis as part of a sanitation workers strike, um, which had been going on for a good part of 1968. The strike had started with a big walkout in February. King had been there for marches, and he was planning to go back to lead another march later in the week of April 4th. Uh, he's there April 3rd. He goes to the Mason Temple, and he gives what becomes his last speech. Uh, we usually just call it the mountaintop speech. I've been to the mountaintop. In this speech, it's really eerily prophetic and not in a way that like people are reading into it. He literally talks about an attempted assassination that he survives in 58. He talks about everything that has happened in his life and in the movement since. And he says, we may not, I may not get there with you, but we're going to get there. Um, it's really, really incredible. It's an incredible moment. We'll put in the show notes, the full text to the speech um, so that you can read it. Dr. King is, his later years are a little less sort of celebrated. There's the big moment we talked about a couple of months ago, the 1963 I Have a Dream speech. That's going to lead to the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and then the Voting Rights Act in 1965. And at that point, Dr. King's activism sort of shifts uh, and he takes on a couple of larger campaigns, including what he calls the Poor People's Campaign, knowing, again, that freedom and equality, it means nothing without economic justice. He's going to advocate advocate for sort of understanding and examining the systemic reasons why the African-Americans tend to be poorer in this country, the sort of systemic racism uh, that is sort of pervading what's happening in the United States. And so it becomes not darker exactly, but more, almost more grueling. He's going after something that is sort of more deeply ingrained in the American psyche. And that's going to be very much sort of his focus. The Poor People's Campaign is uh, something that he devotes a lot of efforts to. And this is sort of why he's in Memphis at a sanitation worker strike like this. Again, economic justice. That's really his main uh, argument in the sort of the later years of his life. 
I also wanted to just jump in really quickly too and talk about his opposition to Vietnam because I think that also plays a big role. I don't know if you, that's what you were about to say, but uh, King, particularly as we get into 68, is speaking out more and more and more about the racial implication of this war and the draft, about, you know, he's a pacifist at the end of the day. He does not support our involvement. And he's he's really been beating the drum on Vietnam as we get into 68, which is something that really does lend to some disapproval of King. His disapproval rating in 1968 is 75% almost disapprove of his actions, which I think is important to put into context in terms of how we remember King today. But in 1968, this constant, I think, activity, particularly related to kind of socioeconomics, his opposition to America's involvement in Vietnam has a lot of people labeling him a communist, an agitator. He's kind of gone for many, uh, I think, middle-class American, white Americans particularly, from this kind of nice shining figure from the March on Washington to this guy who's stirring up trouble. And so there's a very high sort of disapproval of King's actions at this point. And there's like a particularly like in the north like the things that they had the selma bus boycott in montgomery you know all the things that have been happening in the south leading up to the civil rights act those are very blatant things that are easy to sort of say okay something needs to change but this is more systemic it's challenging people's views of themselves in the wider world and it is a struggle that goes on to this day it is still part of what we're we struggle with and it's important to mention dr king was not beloved in his own lifetime he was considered a radical and a troublemaker by a lot of people. And so I really mention this a lot to sort of counter this narrative that he was this beloved figure, this sort of fatherly figure in America. That was not the case uh, during his own lifetime. He was as hated quite a bit, particularly to the point where he gets assassinated. On April 4th, he's in Memphis still. He's staying at the Lorraine Motel, which is, still exists, I am told, in Memphis. Yes, it's a museum today, a museum, a historic site. Um, he is staying in room 306, his regular room at the motel. And he actually, one of the things that really kind of interests me about this, right before Dr. King is assassinated, he and his, like, he's with a bunch of his friends and colleagues, including Jesse Jackson, Ralph Abernathy, and a bunch of other people. They actually have a pillow fight like right at because they're about to go somewhere and they like they're kind of talking and they just to kind of let off steam like they had a pillow fight in their hotel room which i just the whimsy of that is amazing um he is going to go onto his balcony uh, and be struck by a single bullet fired by a man named james earl ray at 601 p.m he is rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital, but dies about an hour later. And I saw this too. Becca has this in our notes, and I saw this too when I was doing the research for this. This amazed me. His biographer later noted that the the doctors say that he had the heart of a 60-year-old man, despite the fact that he was not even 40. And so the stress of this has led, led him to a significantly more aged heart, a lot of stress on his heart, but sort of leading the movement at this to this point had been uh, so stressful that it had prematurely aged his heart. Yes, and I should say that um, James Earl Ray, it's a two-month manhunt to capture him. So King is assassinated on April 4th. It takes two months to capture the man responsible. It takes even longer. The trial won't be until the next year. So this is going to cast a very long shadow over the rest of the year because not only has this tragedy occurred, but the quest for any, even just a taste of legal justice is going to be a very, very long road, which is sadly not surprising. But this is going to very much cast a pall over the rest of 1968. 
Not to mention that it is understandably a deeply, deeply upsetting day and series of days that follow. People are shocked as the news spreads. There are outbursts, riots, and more than 100 cities nationwide. We have at least 39 individuals who die as a result of this, more than 3,000 wounded, and at least 21,000 that are arrested, probably many more. There were big riots in D.C., three days worth of riots, all the way up and down 14th Street in the U Street corridor. They're going to burn down block after block. They have to call in the National Guard to the city. Like, it becomes, there's a, there are famous pictures, and we'll link them up in the show notes, of, like, the Capitol with, like, D.C. burning in the background after these massive riots. And the area, just as a little local color, the area does not recover for decades. Like it takes that whole area of 14th Street today is beautiful, but does not recover for decades after this. It becomes a really depressed area. The King riots are nationwide uh, in almost every major city. They're all around the country. It's a big sort of the nation spontaneously erupts in grief. And LBJ is going to do, the president's going to designate April 7th as a national day of mourning. Uh, So a couple of days later, this is going to lead to the Civil Rights Act of 1968, commonly referred to the Fair Housing Act. So uh, LBJ pushes for this legislation in the aftermath of Martin Luther King's death, and it will be signed into law a week later, April 11th. So the riots are still happening, cities are still burning, people are still grieving, and LBJ, ever the masterful politician, is going to use this to like spearhead a Fair Housing Act uh, and push this through within a week. And his hope, too, is that this might quell some of the upheaval, that this might put some people to ease. But Johnson is also, Johnson's a deeply flawed, complex individual, but passionate about civil rights. And he knows that he can utilize this moment to get this bill through Congress and get it signed. And it works. And it's going to be the last major piece of civil rights legislation of his administration. Um, I should mention, you mentioned the Poor People's Campaign. There is going to be a Solidarity Day rally that will occur after King's assassination. King had been planning a march as part of the Poor People's Campaign. The idea was going to get $30 billion for anti-poverty efforts, full employment for all, guaranteed income, construction of half a million affordable residences. These are all policy positions that we still talk about a lot today. Uh, So King is right there in line with what people are still advocating for today. Uh, King had been touring around cities to raise money and support for this campaign. He spoke at Washington National Cathedral shortly before his death specifically about this. And then after he dies, there's questions about whether this should even be done. Will the city allow it? Can they have a march or a rally given everything? Ralph Abernathy takes it over and he's going to lead 50,000 people to march on Washington. They join with the 3,000 people who have been camped out on the National Mall as part of what was called Resurrection City. They are going to make this march happen, but it is going to be not as successful as they would hope in terms of pushing policy forward. There are many people who feel cynical about things like a march, a rally to get things done. Uh, and there are people that just feel that the government is is not every step forward, there's two steps back. Uh, it really makes a sort of fascinating, I think, compare contrast to the March on Washington, this having to be in such shadow of grief and loss and a sense of cynicism too, a cynicism that no matter how hard you try and no matter if you do things the right way, violence and obstruction is going to find you. Johnson, President of the United States, 
Let's just go right in there for him. Things are tough for LBJ going into 1968. He has, at this point, been president for four full years. So LBJ, of course, becomes president on the death of President Kennedy. He had then, about a year later, wins a term in his own right. So under the terms of the 25th Amendment, he did not serve enough of Kennedy's term. Uh, and so therefore, he can run for a second full term in his own right. So the assumption is, 1968's presidential year, he is the incumbent president. The assumption is that he's going to run. And he is going to face some opposition. In, particularly in the form of Eugene McCarthy, who almost beats him in the New Hampshire primary. McCarthy runs in an anti-war platform. So again, really highlighting how unpopular this war is. And by the time of the New Hampshire primary, Tet has not happened yet. So this is still like, we're still in the early days of this. We haven't ramped up to what 1968 will spell for Vietnam yet. The New Hampshire primary happens pretty early. And so this Eugene McCarthy is going to really demonstrate how unpopular LBJ is, how unpopular his position on Vietnam is. And LBJ on March 31st, so again, to rewind, Dr. King's assassination on April 4th. So this is a few days earlier. In fact, the day of his speech at the National Cathedral in Washington, just a few days before King's death. Uh, LBJ is going to ask for time on the networks that night, and he is going to announce to the stunned surprise of literally everybody uh, that he is not going to seek re-election. He, he announces, he's, which basically blows the field wide open for the Democrats, basically says it's open season. He's not running. He's stepping down. He tells uh, the televised address, almost no one knows this is going to happen. Uh, he gives <laughs> he gives his vice president, Hubert Humphrey, like a few minutes and doesn't tell him for sure that he's going to do it. Which He's is like, nice. I might say this. FYI, watch and find out, I guess. Right <laughs> Newsrooms get an advanced copy of the speech, uh, but without the portion at the end where he says he won't seek re-election. So they're given like an embargo copy, which is something that still happens today. They're like an hour before they're given the copy of the speech to sort of soften the ground so you can do some research or whatever. But he seeks... He keeps the part about him seeking re-election out of this prepared text that he's that is gone to the uh, news media. Which I think really illustrates that for LBJ, I think it does really come down to, this is not an easy decision mm -hmm. for Linda Baines Johnson. Um, I, I finished earlier this year a fascinating, fascinating book about Lady Bird and about what, what, a, what a back and forth this was. And she's one of the only people who knows that by March 31st, he's made up his mind. But the fact that he sort of leaves it out there makes me think he wanted to have the safety net of knowing he could not say it Yes. If he wanted to, because this is a man who has wanted nothing more than to be president of the United States, to lead this country, who really believes he can make a difference. But he has been president from 63 to 68, leading the country during some tumultuous times. Vietnam, and this is by March 31st, Ted has happened. Yes. There's just too much. And I can't even imagine, again, we weren't alive then, but I can't imagine being a member of political Washington and turning on your TV and there's Lyndon B. Johnson. And I'll, I'll give you a little, a little clip from LBJ and then we can talk about how some people react. But he says, with America's sons in the fields far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. For any politician to actually put the office 
before re-election and the responsibilities of that office. It's it's a lot. And again, he's a deeply flawed individual, a deeply flawed president. But I think it says a lot about Johnson and a lot of what we sometimes forget about Johnson and the presidency. I think it's such a great, very bold statesmanlike move on his part because he very he was the going to win. Like there was no one who was going to mount a challenge that was going to unseat him as the Democratic nominee, and then he would have been the prohibitive favorite uh, to win in the fall. It might have been a tough election, but he would have he would have won. Sure. And it just the idea that like he drops this bomb as the primaries are happening, like he doesn't do this in advance, like primaries are already happening, people are already voting for him. And he's just going to like lay this all out there on national TV with not so much as a heads up to anybody that like I feel that my job is best done here. The other sort of thing about this is that he doesn't think to himself, well, maybe if I want to continue doing my job, like the best way to do that is to run for reelection. No, no, no. He says... I got to do the job that's in front of me right now and then basically peace out. I like that you said drop a bomb because Representative Patman of Texas called it Pearl Harbor in politics, that people were so stunned and it was so outside of the conventional wisdom. A Senator Fred Harris of Oklahoma called it a courageous and heroic act, which will mark him as one of history's great men. And I wish more people today remembered this moment and remembered that aspect of it because it's not something that happens in politics often no um and this is not easy for him like he had won an overwhelming victory in 1964 like 61 percent of the vote four years earlier it is it's not going to be as easy he doesn't have as clear a path like he knows this it's going to be a much more uphill climb in 1968 but he is basically just taking himself out of the entire political process to focus on actually governing and i think that just speaks to to so much i'll jump in really quick i'm so sorry but like presidents spend so much time campaigning for re-election it's a time suck and when you're doing that you are not able to do the job of running the country and i think it's such a great like tacit acknowledgement that running and campaigning is not government. right that it's hard work that there are only so many hours in a day particularly back then when you can't phone you know you can't there's no internet back then well they have i know they have phones back then but they don't have like they don't have emails like things take longer um and so I can only imagine that like he just decides, you know what, I've done my bit and I'm this I need to focus on being commander in chief during a difficult and trying time for the United States. And his health is also a big factor here. He had had a heart attack in his 40s and he at this point is almost 60 and he only lives exactly four years later. So basically um, he dies within a few days of uh, Richard Nixon being sworn in for his second term uh, in 1973. Like Johnson does not live that much longer. His heart is not great. So he's in his early 60s. There's a major question. If he had run in one reelection, would he have lived through a full second term? I and I don't think he would have. I'm not sure he would have either. I mean, he's not in great health at this point. And four years of being essentially in retirement, he dies literally four years after he's done being president, almost to the day. So it leads one to wonder if he had gotten worse health news than perhaps he let on, that things were just not super great. And you contrast that to like, we talked about Franklin Roosevelt a few uh, months ago, here getting really bad health news and saying, oh, it'll be fine, I can power through, uh, and sort of how that ended up. Uh, and so you have this really great contrast there. The other sort of person to mention in this uh, moment is uh, Robert Kennedy. You don't mean that Eugene um, McCarthy becomes the runaway favorite when LBJ chooses not to run? 
No. <laughs> Eugene McCarthy does not become a runaway favorite. Bobby Kennedy is the next Kennedy up, as it were. Um, he is, at this point, he had been attorney general for his brother, but is at this point senator from New York. He is popular. He is handsome. He's got beautiful family, and he's from the Kennedy legacy. You know, they've got all gobs of money and handsomeness and all that. He is, there's plenty of pressure for him to run, but he's going to wait until March 16th after the New Hampshire primary to announce. So the timing here is not an accident. So there's the New Hampshire primary. LBJ almost loses. Bobby Kennedy gets in on March 16th, and then 15, two weeks later, LBJ announces that he's no longer interested in seeking the Democratic nomination. Now, does he do that because he knows that Bobby Kennedy will give him a run for his money and he doesn't want to mar his legacy by losing to another Kennedy? Does he do that because he doesn't, he actually wants to devote his time and energy to the country? It's not really clear, but there is, the the timeline there is uh, suggestive. Bobby Kennedy is going to announce, and this is a quote, uh, it is now unmistakably clear that we can change the disastrous divisive policies only by changing the men who make them and so that's why he's going to run for president strongly anti-war he's going to run on a platform of racial and economic justice non-aggression foreign policy and social change he's going to focus on urban centers so he's got a lot of charisma he's got a lot of name recognition and so there are going to be a lot of people who come out to see and hear him speak he is well known and has very good credentials with communities of color and marginalized communities and so they will turn out for him in huge numbers all across the country this is going to be really the key to his success is that he is able to sort of cross uh, a lot of different lines um, he's going to focus on youth there's a lot of young people and he's going to get their energy out this is the first election 1968 in which baby boomers vote so if you're a baby boomer you're born in 1946 you were barely 18 at the last election now we've got a few baby boomers the beginnings of the boomer generation can vote and so he's going to sort of tap into that really cultural energy in that moment he looks young he's got a young family uh, and so he in particularly in contrast to lbj who is not old he's not even 60 but he looks older than he is bobby kennedy is considerably better looking and so has that sort of look to him yeah bobby's 42 which makes him a good almost 15 years younger than eugene mccarthy so mccarthy shares a very similar platform to Bobby, but he's older and he's been in politics longer. Uh, same with Humphrey. So in comparison to the sort of other Democrats, even when you take Johnson out of the equation, Bobby really represents the future of the party, the youth. And it's really remarkable to me that given the fact that he does come from the Kennedy wealth and the Kennedy name, he manages to have such a connection to to these urban areas, to marginalized communities, to young people, to people of a really vast set of backgrounds. He really has kind of this cross-cultural appeal. So he pretty much, he jumps in, then LBJ announced he's not going to run. He's kind of the Democratic front runner in many ways, not necessarily in terms of fundraising and polls at the moment, but he's all anyone's talking about. And then a few days later, Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated. So this is all, and this again, the timeline here I think is important because these events happen in a really compressed amount of time. And so you're, it's contributing to the idea that like the world is kind of coming off the rails here. Like it's all happening extremely fast. 
Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated on April 4th. Bobby Kennedy learns about this on a, his way to a rally in Indianapolis. The chief of police warns him that he cannot provide protection, that he cannot guarantee that Kennedy will be safe, and that there's a big risk to going ahead with this speech. And RFK will speak. He's standing. There's actually, you can see footage of this. He's standing on the bed of a flatbed truck for about five minutes. It's this extremely significant speech. And in 1968, they don't have the Twitters and the TikToks. And so he will announce to the crowd that Dr. King has been assassinated. And most people do not know. And so when you watch the footage of this. Because they've been here waiting for this right. rally. They have not been at home watching TV, listening to the radio. And so they're hearing it from him from for the him. first time. And you can hear, like, if you watch the footage, the screams and the grief are real. Like, this is really a big deal. And he announces this in sort of this really important speech. He calms down the crowd. And, he, you know, you say a lot of things about Bobby Kennedy, but experience with grief is one of them. Like, he at this point has lost three of his siblings. And so he's going to talk about his very real connection with grief and how this you know the healing process and how this works and what happens and so he really talks about loss to this crowd in a really significant and meaningful way it is his speech is credited often with a lack of violence in indianapolis that night the other places in the country sort of erupt into violence and indianapolis is relatively peaceful in part because of this really impassioned and sort of dignified speech he is also, he gives a speech the next day in Cleveland to help sort of quell the unrest that's going on, sort of to reach out not just to people in Cleveland, but all across the country about these riots that are erupting, the, the sort of spontaneous grief that is happening across the, uh, the country in the wake of King's death. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's so fascinating. Um, and we'll put in the show notes some clips to some of this. Uh, the speech he gives in Cleveland on the mindless menace of violence actually has a couple of my favorite Bobby Kennedy quotes within it. He is a man almost uniquely positioned for this time because he has experienced personally so much grief, so much loss, so much upheaval, this, this sense that the world that he thought he was going to inherit is deeply different than it is. And even though he's older than a lot of the boomers, he sort of shares that sense of this is not the way the world should be and we can make it better. And he really lays himself very raw in these first few weeks of his campaign because he pivots into being so open about this and about the grief and the loss. And it makes him such an appealing candidate. He can speak to this in a way that others just cannot. And the fact that his kickoff to his candidacy also then coincides with these events, it's just this sort of perfect storm of giving him this platform, this opportunity to connect with people. People felt like he understood what was going on. And uh, it really just sets him apart. It sets him apart from Humphrey and McCarthy. Despite that, though, McCarthy is notching up primary wins. He's been in Democratic politics a while. He's sort of doing okay, as is Humphrey as the vice president. But then Bobby's going to win some primaries. Indiana, Nebraska. And so he's got a little momentum going. And then there's the California primary. California's a big state, influential state. Bobby and his campaign figure, if he can win California, he's going to knock McCarthy out. And then he'll be the only real anti-war candidate. It'll be him and Humphrey. And really, if you've looked at a picture of Humphrey, Hubert, um, Hubert Humphrey, I get that right, Hubert Humphrey, um, there's no comparison, right? So he's thinking if we can win California, this is it. We have a real chance at cinching this nomination. It's June 4th, um, South Dakota, California primaries, Bobby wins. He goes to speak to supporters in the ballroom of the Ambassador Hotel. 
It's a great, triumphant, wonderful moment. Shortly after midnight, so technically it's June 5th, he's going to exit the ballroom through the hotel kitchen as a shortcut to get to the press room. This is against the advice of his bodyguard. Bobby does utilize private security, personal security, which a man of his background um, and in sort of that political of you would have. At this point, we do not have Secret Service protection for presidential candidates. Um, he's in the kitchen, cutting through the kitchen, when a 24-year-old Palestinian, Sirhan Sirhan, opens fire. RFK is shot three times. Five others are wounded. So gunshots erupt. There is footage of this. There are press here. This is a big public event. And he is pronounced dead just about 26 hours later, June 6th. So you're an American, and in the span of eight weeks, this has happened. I just think you were talking about how compressed it is. It's no, no wonder it's the year that shattered America. How could you possibly process one after another after another? And it, you know, my dad was a teenager, was about 19 in 1968 and in college. And he talked to me once about how this is really like, you get this sense that like, what is happening? All of these terrible things keep occurring and it's just like dominoes or keep coming at you. And it, you know, Bobby Kennedy in so many ways is the big lost hope. You know, he was running such a great, really pure sort of idealistic campaign. He's so young and it just ends brutally in the blink of an eye and it's really remarkable and then there's only out of four brothers there's only ted the youngest left um he's going to eulogize his brother and it's i mean ted kennedy could speak i tell you what this is a quote my brother need not be idealized or enlarged in death beyond what he was in life to be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it saw suffering and tried to heal it saw war and tried to stop it. As he said many times in many parts of this nation to those he touched and who sought to touch him, some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? Um, his funeral mass is held at St. Patrick's in New York City, but the pro procession is, the funeral procession processes through DC, passes through Resurrection City, which is on the mall, it stops in front of the Lincoln Memorial, and he is buried next to his brother uh, at Arlington National Cemetery, right on the same rise. Uh, so there, and this is all, again, this is now mid-June, so we have gotten that far, you know, like there's been a lot of things happening just in the first six months of this year. You've got the war, you have civil rights, you have these two huge and prominent, important and emotional assassinations. Lyndon Johnson's not running. Suddenly, with the death of Robert Kennedy, the Democratic field is blown wide open again for the second time in about three months, and the convention is only a few weeks away. And so who is, the Democratic Party is sort of left scrambling, who's going to be the standard bearer moving into the fall? Like there's a lot of sort of chaos at this moment in the Democratic Party. There's a lot of, the war in Vietnam is ramping up, or it's still or continuing to go on. The Tet Offensive will continue on through August, so that's continuing to go on. And so there's a lot of question marks. Uh, we're not gonna resolve any of them for you. <laughs> We're going to leave you like a cliffhanger, but that's kind of where we are as the sort of summer uh, starts to he really heat up literally and figuratively. We're going to head towards these conventions, which we'll talk about next time. And we're at this sort of real inflection point in American history where no one exactly knows what's coming next. Like, how are we going to do this? And it's sort of fascinating because I, I think, you know, we, we 
being tour guides and historians are really interested in elections and stuff. And when you really do this exercise of breaking down what had happened in that year, you're an American voter. What are you even thinking? Like, how would you even go about trying to decide who could put the country back on course? And of course, many people have different ideas about what back on course means. What does moving forward mean? Who is going to benefit from bringing the country out of this and who is going to benefit from more upheaval and more division. Um, these are all questions that are sort of on everyone's mind. But I, I was just sort of thinking, like, if I had been 22 and this was my first presidential election, yeah. where would your head even be at? Right. How do you even figure that out? I just, it's just the confusion of it and the uncertainty of it. Like where, and if you're a young person, the, just the fear that like, where are we going? Like, how is this, the, the country that we're creating and inheriting, like what is going on? You want someone to make it better in a lot of ways. And I feel like that's kind of, a, it's a frightening moment. I would imagine. Absolutely. Um, and we're going to touch on, I think, a lot of really good stuff in the next the next part. We'll talk about the conventions, the election. We'll talk about what's going on a little bit more on the Republican side. We will talk about Richard Nixon, who is just fun to talk about, if nothing else, a fascinating figure. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit, too, about the silent majority in that as well. So there's a whole element of the population that uh, we have not necessarily dug into. But I think this gives us a good sense of the year. I just... It does not surprise me that people were watching movies like The Graduate and Rosemary's Baby and 2001 because wouldn't you be paranoid and freaked out and exhausted and terrified with all of this happening? It really, I always, for me, it's always about movies and, and TV and it's like, no wonder, no wonder people were like, right, freaking like, out. Like, I need to escape. Yeah. Yeah. Oof, 1968, y'all. It was a real one. All right, yo. So we're gonna leave y'all here with a cliffhanger. The uh, we're gonna we'll pick back up, talk about some a six a six to fifty yeah, year old cliffhanger, cliffhanger. In case you don't know how this ends. Um, <laughs> On the edge of your seats. Uh, that said, um, if you guys are patrons, thank you so much. We love our patrons. Thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting us. If you're not a patron, it's never too late. You can sign up on our Patreon. You get access to a special feed with special patron episodes. We've had some really fun patron topics. So if you are missing out on some extra scandalous, extra grisly topics, you're going to want to check out the patron feed. Hey, um, it's going to be great. So thank you guys. We're going to talk about the rest of 1968, or at least politically anyway. Um, thank you all. <laughs> bye. All right. Bye, guys. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin. Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time, 